you can open your Bibles to the book of Jonah, Jonah chapter 1. This morning we're going to be looking at verses 5 to 16 of Jonah chapter 1. We saw last week that the word of the Lord came to Jonah, giving him instruction to go and preach to Nineveh, uh, to warn them of the coming judgment of the Lord. Uh, But we noted that Jonah, instead of obeying, flees to Tarshish. He flees from the presence of the Lord. We noted that um, God pursues Jonah, and that he hurls a wind at the sea so that the ship ship threatened to break up. But this morning we read on, and we read of what happens after that. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had laid down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? And where do you come from? What is your country? And of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord God, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord, because he had told them. Then they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may be quiet, may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land. But they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life. And lay not on us innocent blood. For you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea. And the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly. And they offered a sacrifice to the Lord. And made vows. Well, last week we noted the, the irony of God using the very means that Jonah was depending on to escape, to chastise the prophet. Remember that Jonah had relied on the wind and the ship and the sea to try and get away from the Lord. And yet the Lord uses all of these to rebuke the prophet and to bring him back to his senses. But this morning there's no shortage of irony in our text either. Because it will become clear as we work our way through the text that the author of the book of Jonah intends for us to 
to compare Jonah with the pagan sailors that surround him. And this is where the irony comes in. Because you might remember that when we first looked at the book of Jonah, we said that that Jonah's reason for not going to Nineveh is because he believed that the Ninevites did not deserve the mercy of God, but he believed that he did. He believed that they, they, the, their wickedness disqualified them from God's mercy. But he was convinced that his righteousness meant that he was that he deserved God's mercy. And what we're going to see this morning is as we compare Jonah to the pagan sailors, is that Jonah is not as righteous as he might think, because we're going to see that the pagan sailors actually show far more piety than Jonah does. They seem to have a, a better sense of the difference between right and wrong than Jonah does. And we're also going to see that, that God uses not only the wind and the ship and the sea to rebuke Jonah, but he even enlists these pagan sailors to rebuke the prophet. And so I want you to note, first of all, the way that the author of the book of Jonah contrasts Jonah's professed fear of God with the demonstrated fear of the sailors. Look at verse 9. In verse 9, Jonah declares himself to be a Hebrew, one who fears the Lord, the God of heaven. This seems to be a, a profession with very little substance to it. Because is there anything that we've seen in the book of Jonah thus far that would give any kind of indication that Jonah feared the Lord? I mean, he's saying this, he's saying that he fears the Lord even as he's on this ship fleeing from the word of the Lord. Even as he's in rebellion against God, he confesses to fear God. And so already we see some, some irony coming into the story. But it's very interesting when you start to look at what the author of Jonah says about the fear of the sailors. It's very interesting to contrast that with what is said of, of Jonah in, in the text. In our text there are, are three references to the fear of the sailors. In the ESV is translated as they were afraid. But every time it occurs in the Hebrew, it's the exact same word, they fear. And what we see in our text is something that Old Testament scholars refer to as a growing phrase. And what that means is that the author uses, repeats the same word three times, but every time he adds, a, he adds another word to describe this fear. And so when, when we see this being used by the author of the book of Jonah, we, we see that he's trying to point to some process that is happening. And I would argue that the process that is happening is that the, the sailors go from being pagans to, to being converted, to fearing the Lord God of, of Israel. But the first time their fear is mentioned in, is in verse 5, when, when this storm first hits. We're simply told that they were afraid. That's all it says. But then, as we see that Jonah reveals to them that it is Yahweh who has sent this storm, we are told that they, that they were exceedingly afraid. 
then finally, after they throw Jonah overboard and, and the sea ceases to rage, we are told that they feared exceedingly Yahweh. They, they fear the Lord exceedingly. And so we see this process going on that the more and more the Lord God reveals himself to these sailors, the more they find out about him, the more they grow to fear not the storm, not the situation, not death, but they begin to fear the Lord. I mean, you'd, you'd think that after the sea had calmed down that their fear would be something of the past. And yet we're told when the sea calms, they fear exceedingly the Lord. The humility and awe and reverence with which the sailors responded to the Lord stands in stark contrast to the way that, that Jonah responded to him there in verse 3. Because Jonah responded with rebellion. The sailors respond in submission. But it's not only Jonah's lack of fear that is contrasted with the very real fear of the sailors, but it's also Jonah's lack of prayer. I mean, isn't it amazing that the first time that we read of Jonah praying in the book of Jonah is when he's in the belly of the fish. It's as though God has to bring him to the very to the very point of death before he would pray to him. And yet, look at the way that the, that the sailors are described in the story. In verse 5, we see that when the storm hits, they immediately cry out to their gods. Now, true, they were crying out to idols, but at least they were praying. But when Jonah tells them the name of his God, Yahweh, it seems like they begin to realize that these gods that they've been calling out to are powerless to save them. And so they turn their prayers, they turn their attention, they turn their worship to the Lord, to Yahweh, the God of the Hebrews. I think we just need to stop and just think about how remarkable that is. That this ship full of pagan so uh, sailors who were, who were just now worshipping their own gods, their native gods, now cry out in, in prayer to Yahweh. Amazing to think that exactly what Jonah didn't want to happen, Jonah didn't want to see pagans coming to faith in God. Now even in his disobedience, God turns pagans to himself. They call out to Yahweh in prayer and they even acknowledge his sovereignty they say he you have done all that you please and then amazingly once jonah is thrown overboard and once the the sea ceases from its raging we see the, the sailors praying to yahweh not only praying to him but worshiping him they offer a sacrifice to him they bring their vows to him. It's an amazing foreshadowing of what we're going to see in, in chapter 3. As the Ninevites forsake their idols and turn to worship Yahweh. Again, we're meant to see a contrast here between the sailors and Jonah. Because the sailors, in their very limited exposure to Yahweh, they respond to God in reverence and worship, the reverence and worship that he deserves. But the author of Jonah is showing us 
is that Jonah's claim to fear the Lord were hollow words and lacking any real substance. But as we consider the scene before us, we need to ask ourselves the question this morning, do we truly fear the Lord? Or are our words just as empty as Jonah's? I remember a few years ago witnessing to a man and he was trying very hard to convince me that he really wasn't that bad of a guy after all. And I remember there was a, there was a phrase that he kept using that's, that's always stuck with me because he kept saying to me, if there's, one thing I, there's, if there's one thing I can tell you, it's this. I fear my God. And he kept saying it over and over again. And strangely enough, he was, he was using this this profession that he fears God, he was using that to try and balance out all the, the sinful stuff that he's just confessed to me. He said, you know, I realize that I, from time to time, yes, I, I get drunk with my friends. Yes, I haven't always been faithful to my wife. But I can tell you this, I truly fear my God. And those words were empty. They were empty just as Jonah's words were empty. But as I prepared for this message this week, I had to ask myself the question, do I really fear the Lord? If someone were to, if someone had observed my life over the past week, over the past month, over the past year, would they come away saying, there goes a man who truly fears the Lord? Or would they, or would they say, that guy's a Christian? You can't be serious. And so I ask you this morning, is your reverence for God, your fear of God, something merely theoretical? Something you sing about on a Sunday morning? A certain tone of voice that you use when you pray? Or is there actual practical evidence in your life that you truly fear the Lord? Is there substance to that claim? I'll leave you to dwell on that question. But I want us to move on to the three ways in which the sailors rebuke Jonah. Because as we said at the beginning, God uses these pagan sailors to rebuke this Hebrew prophet. We see this first of all in verse 6. When the captain comes to wake Jonah, he says, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. And the words clearly imply a rebuke. It's not as though the captain came to him and said to him, listen, we, we're having a, a prayer meeting on the deck. Maybe you should come and join us. That's not the, the sense that we get from, from the words of the captain. His question to Jonah betrays his, his disbelief. How can you possibly be asleep at a time like this? You need to remember that this was a storm that was so violent that it caused even the most experienced sailors to quake in their boots. The ship would have been filled with, with the sound of these senior sailors barking orders to the riggers. Cargo and furniture would have been flung around as the waves shook the ship from side to side. There would have been the sound of creaking and, and cracking and snapping timber as the ship, we are told, threatened to break up. 
And yet the captain finds Jonah fast asleep. And so he cries out, What do you mean, you sleeper? I love the Afrikaans translation of this because in the Afrikaans he says, What makirio that is your fastlap? What's wrong with you? How can you be asleep at a time like this? Are you unaware of the danger that we're in? Don't you know that the ship could be ripped apart at any moment? Don't you know we're about to drown? And you're sleeping. But the next words out of his mouth would have surely tipped Jonah off to the fact that there was a, a divine voice coming to him through the mouth of this pagan ship captain. Because we, there's, a, there's an echo in these words of what we saw in verse 2. When, when God tells Jonah to get up and, and go to Nineveh. Because in verse 2 we read God saying to him, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it. And then we read in verse 6, the ship captain saying, Arise, call out to your God. In the Hebrew, those verbs that he uses there, both of them are identical. Arise and call out. That rebuke must have, must have stung for the prophet because what God was saying to him through the mouth of this ship captain was that he should have been calling out to the pagans in Nineveh to pray, that God, uh, to pray and plead for deliverance from God. And instead, here is a, a pagan sailor rebuking Jonah and telling him that he should be calling out to God for deliverance. Here's a pagan sailor asking him why he's asleep when he should be praying. God uses the captain of the ship to show Jonah the consequences of his disobedience, to show him what his sin has led to. Instead of being God's instrument of deliverance to the Ninevites, he now stands in need of deliverance himself. He should have been the one to bring God's blessing down upon Nineveh. Instead, he's the one responsible for bringing down God's displeasure, not only on himself, but on all the sailors aboard the ship. And all of this because Jonah is somewhere that he's not supposed to be, doing something that he's not supposed to be doing. But then there's a, a second rebuke, as if that was not enough. There's a second rebuke in verse 10. This rebuke comes in response to Jonah revealing to the sailors that he worships Yahweh, the God of heaven, the God who made the sea and the dry land. And it comes, we are told, in response to the revelation that he was on this ship fleeing from this God, fleeing from his presence. And so in response to that revelation, the sailors cry out, What is this you've done? It's a phrase that occurs five other times in the Old Testament. And it always expresses moral outrage. It implies that the, the guilty person has done something both sinful and foolish. You might recall that this is what, what, what God says to, to Eve in, in the garden in Genesis 3. When she eats of the forbidden fruit and gives it to Adam, she, he says to Eve, what is this you've done? It's the exact same phrase that these 
pagan sailors now challenge Jonah with. They're asking Jonah, how could you have done this thing? Again, how that rebuke must have stung. Here he is a prophet of Yahweh being rebuked by pagans with very little knowledge and experience of God. Even the pagans can see how foolish Jonah was to think that he could run from the Lord. It's almost as though they're saying to him, you've just told us that this God of yours made the sea and the dry land, and yet here you are trying to flee from him on the ship. You're a special kind of stupid, aren't you? For if you have unbelieving family or friends or co-workers, you probably know what it's like when an unbeliever points to something in your life and says, is that really what you should be doing as a Christian? Have you ever had that happen to you? It hurts, doesn't it? And it's amazing how unbelievers, even in their spiritual blindness, when it comes to inconsistency in a believer's life, they often have laser eye focus. It's amazing how quick they are to spot inconsistency in our lives. And to be sure, there are times when they completely get it wrong. At at times, they really are just looking for something that they can accuse you of. But we all know of times when an unbelieving family member or friend says something to us and it just, it just cuts us to the heart because we know it's true. We know that what they've pointed out is true. As a Christian, should you really be talking to your kids like that? Oh, you watch this TV show too? I would have thought that that would be out of bounds for a Christian. Or perhaps... One of, them, one of the most difficult ones to hear. For a Christian, you sure don't talk about God a lot. How do you respond to criticism like that? Do you immediately get defensive and try to excuse your behavior? Do you get angry? Do you respond with criticism of your own? How do you respond when an unbeliever sees something in your life that even you missed. I think Jonah, the book of Jonah reveals something to us that we often miss in situations like this because we we tend to act very reflexively, don't we? And defensively. But what we see here in this this account of Jonah and the sailors is is the reality that God often rebukes his people through the words of unbelievers. Is that really so surprising? I mean, God has at times rebuked people through the mouth of a donkey. So, I mean, he could use unbelievers as well. But at times, God uses the words of unbelievers to humble us, to force us to acknowledge sin that has slowly crept into our lives and which we have refused to deal with. And so when an unbeliever says something to us, whether as a joke or seriously, perhaps we should view it as an, as an opportunity to show them what repentance looks like. Because they expect us to make excuses and to justify our behavior because that's exactly how they would have responded. 
but what an opportunity to point them to the gospel. What an opportunity to say to them, you know what? You're right. I have sinned. And I thank you for pointing out my sin to me. Because now I know it's there. Now I can, now I can deal with my sin. Not because I believe that this sin will condemn me if I don't deal with it. But because I know the price that has been paid for this sin. My precious Savior shed His own blood for this sin. And that's why I want to deal with it. Because I want nothing, I want nothing more in life than to honor Him. And if this sin dishonors Him, I want to deal with it. Use the opportunity to show them that you don't feel the need to convince others of your righteousness. That you are righteous enough to be considered a Christian because it is not your righteousness that you're depending on. It's not your righteousness that you're relying on. It's the righteousness of Christ that makes you worthy to be called a child of God. It's very tempting in that moment to feel like if you go over to preaching now, then you'd be a hypocrite. This unbeliever has just pointed your sin out to you, and now you want to preach to them. But just remember that God used Jonah's disobedience to bring these pagan sailors to repentance. And so let's use the opportunities that God gives us. Let's listen for the voice of God. Let's not immediately assume that this unbeliever just doesn't know what he's talking about. At times, God uses the voice of unbelievers to force us to acknowledge sin, which we've been ignoring for so long. But then finally, look at verses 11 to 15. Then they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may be quiet for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. And he said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will be quiet. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land. But they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood. For you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. I want you to just put yourself into the, the position of the sailors. Your ship has just been struck by the worst storm that you've ever witnessed. You're fully aware of the fact that you're probably not going to survive the storm. You, you realize that the ship can't last forever. But then you find out that the only thing you need to do to save yourself and to save your fellow sailors is to throw this Hebrew prophet overboard. You find out that actually he deserves to die. You find out that he's put all of you in this position because of his sin. What do you do? How do you respond to a revelation like that? Well, I don't know about you, but personally I find the sailor's supply, uh, uh, response quite surprising. Because instead of immediately throwing Jonah overboard, 
They rode hard to try and get back to dry land. They were willing to, to put their own lives at risk for this stranger, a man who deserved to die for his disobedience. And then we read that when they eventually realized that they were left with no other option than to throw him overboard, isn't it amazing that they then are concerned that the Lord would hold them accountable for his death? They're concerned that, that, that the Lord would charge his blood to their account. And, and that tips us off to the fact that the issue for them was not simply that they, that they really liked Jonah and they didn't want Jonah to die. They were concerned that God was going to hold them accountable for murder. I mean, just, just compare that with what we read of, of Jonah in the book of Jonah. These pagan sailors were concerned that the blood of a, of a single Hebrew prophet would be charged to their account if they were to throw him overboard. But Jonah has no problem with the fact that, that his disobedience would mean the, the destruction of entire city. They're more concerned about blood guilt than he is. In Ezekiel 3 verse 18, God makes it clear that a, a prophet who refuses to warn the wicked would be held accountable for their blood. This is what we read. God says, If I say to the wicked, you shall surely die, and you give him no warning, nor speak to warn the wicked from his way, in order to save his life, that wicked person shall die for his iniquity, but his blood will I require at your hand. The third and final rebuke is clear. God shows Jonah that these pagan sailors are more concerned about preserving life than he is. They show greater kindness to Jonah than he's willing to show to the Ninevites. They seem to be more merciful than he is. Of course, that's how the book of Jonah ends, doesn't it? Because we read of Jonah moping about the fact that God destroys the plant that was offering him shade. And God confronts him and he says, you're more concerned about this plant, the survival of this plant, than you are about the survival of a city which, whose inhabitants, uh, of, of whose inhabitants at least 120,000 are children. And so the point is clear. The contrast is clear. Even these pagan sailors are more compassionate, more merciful, more concerned about incurring the wrath of God than Jonah is. But it's not enough for us to look at the book of Jonah this morning and come away saying, what a sorry excuse for a prophet. What a terrible guy that Jonah was. No, we need to look at ourselves this morning and, and ask ourselves the question, are we concerned about people perishing without Christ? Are we faithful witnesses for the gospel? Let me be the first this morning to confess to you that, that I don't think I am. I don't think I'm as faithful as I should be in proclaiming the truth of salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ. The question before us this morning is, is are we going to be like Jonah? Are we like Jonah? Do we lack compassion for the lost? I mean, I find it 
amazing that when you look at when you look at uh, rescue workers, I find it amazing how 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 willing they are to to put their own lives at risk for people they don't even know. You think of 9/11 and the hundreds of emergency workers who died trying to to save others. You think about soldiers that we read of who who've fallen on live grenades in order to protect the lives of their fellow soldiers or the lives of civilians. And then we look at our own concern for unbelievers who are dying and going to hell. Often we're not even willing to cross the street to go and speak to someone about Christ. so often we're like Jonah fast asleep while the world is perishing all around us while thousands of people are entering a Christless eternity every day are we calling out to God for conversions are we speaking to people about Christ are we making every effort have we become so used to our our comforts and our entertainment and our hobbies that we've forgotten that people all around us are lost and and headed for judgment. It's one thing to say that, that Christ is the only hope for sinners. It's another thing for that truth to be clearly evident in the things that we prioritize, the way we, we spend our time, the way we use, the way we spend our money. But this morning, my biggest fear is that you would leave here thinking that the lesson that we need to learn from this text is that we should be less like Jonah and more like the sailors. I don't think that's the lesson that God wants us to learn from the story. God's not saying, this is Jonah. Jonah's bad. Don't be like Jonah. That's not the lesson in front of us this morning. I think God is saying to us, this is Jonah. Take a good long look at Jonah and you'll realize that you're not as different from Jonah as you might think you are. I think the message of the book of Jonah is that Jonah is a picture of our persistent disobedience, our rebellion, our foolishness, our self-righteousness, our lack of, of genuine mercy and compassion and grace. Jonah reminds us that we really do not have any righteousness to boast about. That the only reason that we think we are righteous is because we're blind to the sin that's there. Sin that even unbelievers at times can see. So the book of Jonah reminds us this morning of our need of a savior. Our need of a redeemer. Our need for a mediator. Because when it comes to God's righteous standard, we like Jonah simply don't measure up. The book of Jonah reminds of us of our need for one who is greater than Jonah. That's the way our Lord referred to himself. He was greater than Jonah. Unlike Jonah, no sin was to be found in him. When the Father sent him to a wicked and a cruel people, he did not run away from the commission, but we are told that he went willingly to the cross. 
God called Jonah to simply preach to the wicked Ninevites. He called Jesus to die for a wicked humanity. And he obeyed. The Lord Jesus Christ is the reason we can leave this building this morning hopeful, knowing that he has made an end to our sin. Don't you find it interesting in our text that though the sailors prayed for deliverance, it is not until Jonah is hurled overboard into the raging sea that the sea ceases from its raging and they are safe. Our only hope this morning is one who, like Jonah, was hurled into, was hurled into the, the raging sea of God's wrath. He took God's wrath upon himself in order that we might be saved. And so there's bad news this morning. We're like Jonah. We are sinful, rebellious, and stubborn. But the good news is that there is one who's greater than Jonah, by whose death alone we are reconciled to God and adopted as his children. Let's pray. Lord, we don't want to come away from this morning just thinking about how bad Jonah was, about how foolish he was to try and run away from you, about how much he lacked compassion and mercy. We don't want to come away this morning just concluding that Jonah was a really bad guy, we really want to come away this morning looking at our own lives. We want to reckon with the sin that's there. We want to reckon with the many ways in which we are like Jonah. Won't you help us this morning as we, as we think about Jonah, as we think about the book of Jonah. Won't you help us to see our need for Christ. Won't you humble us once again this morning as, as we realize that we really do not have any righteousness of our own. We have nothing to boast about before you. Won't you help us this morning to humble ourselves before you once again as we realize that if it weren't for the death of the Lord Jesus Christ, we truly would have no hope. Won't you help us, O oh God? Won't you point us to Christ as our only hope, our only Savior, the one greater than Jonah, who took your wrath and made an end of our sin? on the cross we need your grace we need you to, to reveal this truth to us we need you to change us oh God by your word we pray this in Jesus name Amen